Hello, and welcome to the Landis Cooperative Experience, featuring the bull bear banter. We all know that markets often behave in a way that can't easily be explained. The bull bear banter is our best effort to digest the noise of the marketplace. So thank you for joining us. Sit back, relax, and let's talk about the markets. Hello, this is Cheyenne Dunham, and I want to welcome you to the August 30th episode of the Bull Bear Banter. Today, I'm joined by Tom Guinan, and he's going to give us a recap of the grain markets for the week. Sure, Cheyenne. On Friday afternoon, December corn futures finished a penny and a half lower at 369 and three quarters, but that is up two cents for the week. November soybean futures gained a half a cent today, up 12 and a half for the week. Well, Tom, I don't know that I could classify anything this week as a big story. There are certainly a lot of little stories. It feels like the market is sort of in a wait-and-see mode. We're at the end of August, Labor Day weekend. My favorite sport of football is kicking off. Right, right your favorite sport of Uh football. The kids are back in school, and it seems like everyone has realized that harvest really is just around the next corner or two. We've seen an uptick of old crop movements for beans the last couple of weeks. Old crop corn continues to move off the farm. Bins are getting cleaned out and ready for another harvest. With that in mind, let's suspend the normal back and forth on bull bear factors, and I'll just have you cover corn and I'll cover beans. Sounds good, and I agree with you, Cheyenne. It's been kind of a slow news week this week. But let's dive into some of those things impacting corn. Earlier this week, the president announced that there would be a giant deal for the ethanol industry, and as of now, there are no details to be released and to be talked about. We've also heard that the EPA is going to relax methane rules on the oil and gas industry. That, along with recent waivers, certainly seems to be more positive to the oil and gas industry than to the ethanol industry. Meanwhile, we hear news of another ethanol plant closing down, at least for the time being. This one is also close to home, just north of the border in Winnebago, Minnesota. Some other corn news. As far as exports go for new crop, sales were above market expectations. However, the total commitments for 1920 are about half of what they were a year ago and the lowest in 14 years at this point in time. Argentina's corn is offered at levels more than 40 cents less than the U.S., and there are indications that the peso could depreciate another 45%. Black Sea feed wheat has dropped 5% in the last month, meaning more competition in the international market for feed grains. Definitely not good news for the U.S. farmer. Tom, looking at soybeans, the main story for them is going to be weather this week. While we do have a cooler forecast for the next week or so, there isn't any talk of a frost warning yet. The size of this crop is really going to depend on how soon a frost happens. Right now, there doesn't seem to be much, if any, weather premium built into the market. If or when we start to hear about frost coming into the Midwest, we should expect a little bump. But at this point, with 1 billion bushels of ending stocks expected, how much of a rally should we or could we even expect at this point? Maybe 20 cents? Maybe? I'm definitely not looking for a dollar. On the export front, old crop sales were a positive compared to expectations, as they showed about 3.5 million bushels of sales versus an expectation of 4 to 8 million in net cancellations. New crop sales show about 206 million bushels committed, compared to 486 million at this time last year, with an average of 556 over the last 10 years. It could be another long year for the soybean market. As far as what to watch for in some upcoming events, the next WASDE report is on September the 12th. While this is not normally a big USDA report this year, who knows? We've certainly seen a lot of interesting reactions to several of these uh, WASDE reports this year. There are some private crop tours starting next week. As we mentioned earlier, we have one of our GMAs participating in one. It'll be interesting to get her take when she is back. These don't get as much press as a pro-farmer tour, but many in the industry keep an eye on these private reports if and when they can learn of the data. Also, I recently spoke with Steve Peterson, a farmer in our northwest region, about a trip he made earlier this year to China with Farm Bureau, 
and I thought that he had so much good information about that trip that I should just interview him for the podcast. So stick around at the end of the Bull Bear Banter for that interview. Thanks, Tom. I had an opportunity to listen to some of that earlier, and I really thought it was some interesting information. So really hope our listeners take the time to set aside if you're going on a long road trip this weekend or something great to put it on in the car and just hear what he had to say so even though movement on old crap beans was kind of so-so this week I was pretty busy didn't spend a lot of time on twitter outside of work enjoying this weather we've got here so I don't have a tweet of the week but as we mentioned earlier you know this is the time for sports ball and today is a fun holiday and it's college colors day and that happens on the first friday of each college school year so i know a lot of people in the office probably in the general Ames area and around are going to be heading to those games tomorrow so just kind of a heads up you know be safe while you're going out there and everything kind of have a plan for what you're going to do afterwards and all that but want to wish everyone a you know a good start to college football season there if you're not into sports ball like me today is also national toasted marshmallow day so there's an opportunity to celebrate for everyone out there I think that's all we have today. We appreciate you joining us for the Bull Bear Banter as part of the Landis Cooperative Experience podcast. As we've been talking for a while now, our tagline continues to make sense. Bears make money, bulls make money, and pigs just go to market. If you have any questions regarding grain marketing decisions, please reach out to your area grain marketing advisor. We want to thank you for listening, and Tom is going to be back with you next week. Hi, this is Tom Guinan, and I'm joined today by uh, Steve Peterson, who's a local farmer in the Slifer area raising corn and soybeans. First of all, just Steve, give us a little feel for what your involvement with Farm Bureau is. Currently, I'm the voting delegate in Webster County, and that's uh, in, a, in an overview. That's the the body that develops and makes the policy or finalizes the policy within Farm Bureau. Farm Bureau has market study trips that they do every annually every year. And uh, this last March, uh, we had a delegation of about 26 farmers throughout Iowa that uh, traveled. Uh, we went basically from east to west China and then uh, exited through the Hong Kong region. So I want to talk just a little bit about that. Like I said, you and I have uh, talked quite a bit about it already, and I thought it'd be good for our audience to hear a little bit of that. So I'm going to take a step back, though. When you say you're a voting delegate with Farm Bureau, how many delegates are there in the state of Iowa? And you know, what's your main reason for being? What do you guys do as a body? There's 100 voting delegates in Iowa. Basically, every county has a representative, except Pottawatomie County has two, because there's an east and a west, from the original foundation of Farm Bureau. Uh, The voting delegate uh, role is to craft and finalize the policy that is developed by our members at basically the grassroots level. So that could entail uh, uh, anything from uh, fence row laws or fence row policy, we're not making law, to currently we're dealing with uh, regulations on uh, animal confinement units. it could be uh, how tax money is spent. And these policies are what our organization takes to the, the legislators and local governments and okay. officials from Iowa clear up to the national. So with the uh, Farm Bureau group, you went on a market study trip to China. How did you get selected for that? And how many people went with you from Farm Bureau? And just kind of The, the, the entire group was about 26 people. Uh, there was, a, I think, a few hundred that applied to these trips every year. Uh, they look at involvement in Farm Bureau and your background. Amongst our group, there was a wide, they try to look get a cross-section. We had school teachers, we had uh, retired uh, 
ag industry leaders, you know, businessmen. Uh, so it's a very uh, diverse cross-section of people, but all tied to Iowa agriculture. Because it is what, what exactly what it states. It is a market study. It's not designed to be in a specific industry or a specific uh, commodity. Currently, I know we do have a delegation over there that is very narrowly focused on beef especially. In China. Uh, in China, okay. currently as we speak. So it's uh, it's it's an ongoing thing. Uh, we find it, it brings a lot of value to our people to look at these uh, various markets throughout the world, and it gives us a, a better understanding of them. Okay, and I think you mentioned that every other year it's a different focus as far as a different type of country. So how does that work? We, we try some years uh, we'll go into basically a competitor. Uh, it would be like, a, you know, a Brazil and Argentina. They're, of course, competitors of ours on the grain side of things. Uh, some years years, it might be more of an importer uh, like Japan and some of those countries. So to give us different perspectives on uh, world trade. So as you embarked on that trip, I want to kind of start with some of the basics. When you first arrived in China, what were some of the things you you noticed right away? I mean, obviously communist country and things are a little different there, but any similarities or striking differences that appeared to you that you might not have been thinking Uh, about as you walked into the country? The thing that was most uh, apparent to me when when I got out of the airport uh, was the air quality. It, it is uh, horrific pollution as I know it here in uh, Iowa and specifically in the Slifer area is almost non-existent. The the odors, the, the, the toxicity of the air, you definitely felt it in your eyes and your throat. Throughout our travels, uh, it was interesting to listen to China's desire to bring ethanol into their mix because of air quality problems. China is a unique country in that the government is communist and the military is communist, but the people basically exist under kind of an authoritarian law. And there's a very simple form of capitalism in that country. The people, as they work up, they are basically establishing... I think it would be a stretch to call it a middle class, but they can they can buy better food, they can buy a better apartment, um, they can uh, purchase a car. That's relatively new in China. We had uh, people briefing us on on the trip beforehand, and they said be very leery of crossing streets. Uh, a lot of Chinese people have less than five years driving experience in the entire country. So what we would coin the middle class is growing in China. Uh, there looks like new potential for markets uh, like ethanol uh, to help with the pollution because that's obviously a big problem in the confined areas of China. Um, In the Beijing area alone, there is estimation, and these are very rough numbers. They'd never give you an exact, uh, anywhere from 26 to 28 million people. Um, Perspective, we're just a little over 3 million in Iowa and about 350 million in the United States. A lot of people in very small areas. So you you talked about ethanol. I know earlier this year, we kind of had a discussion internally about three rules that China tries to abide by. Uh, One, they don't want to increase their acres of production for farm ground. Two, they don't want to import more than they're already importing as far as grains or other ag products. And three, they want to have a bigger ethanol presence. So Correct. So, so in your yeah. estimation, which one of those do they have to start to violate to make that happen? Just in their general production, there are large project production areas or more modernized production areas with combines. And, and when I say modern, it's not what I would recognize as modern here in Iowa, but there's roughly 450 million peasant farmers in China that we got to see their fields. And by the government gives them, I believe, approximately a 0.4 hectares, which is a little short of an acre. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically there's 450 
gardeners is what I would... 450 million. 450 million gardeners that uh, are doing everything uh, very primitively and mostly by hand. And they utilize everything from the tip of the, to, from the tassel to the root ball. And they use that for heat. And then they uh, dry the ear, they pick the ear hole and they dry it on their roof. So it's a, a very primitive but vast uh, agricultural presence. I questioned whether they could feed a modern ethanol plant with their uh, production techniques. Because as we all know, a lot of these industries need uh, uh, reliable and consistent supplies of corn. So it, it seemed a little disconnected to me that they could bounce right into a, a modern ethanol or any production facility without having vast quantities of corn available. And the question of, you know, we, we all see in the in the news and the market reports of uh, China's uh, corn on hand, and it just seems to magically exist year after year after year. We never seen any evidence or in our tours, we never seen any vast holding facilities where this mythical grain exists. So that was kind of a uh, almost folklore to us. Uh, we, were, we were hoping to see some of that, but that just we, we never witnessed any of that in our travels. So it's got to be just small holdings on, like you said, at all these, I mean, 450 million farmers, that's a lot. I mean, that's more than the population of the U.S. like you talked Correct. about. That's, you know, they're all holding 100, 100, 100 bushels. 200 bushels yeah. on the rooftops. Yeah. Um, and, it, you know, of course, it can't be held for an indefinite amount of time. So um, there's going to be challenges, but you're, you're exactly right. There's, there's going to have to be something in their mix to make that happen. On the same hand, they have uh, the, the biggest indicator they've done is in their dairy industry, which we got a tour of several very modern modern dairy industries in different regions of the country. A few years ago, they had a scare in their uh, infant formula with an additive that was was passed through. Just like right now, they have African swine fever going through the the herd. We were there in March, and that was kind of the pinnacle of the peak of the the newsworthiness of African swine fever. And there was a lot of denial on the part of the Chinese. But similar to what we uh, know has happened in the dairy industry, they have used that that tragedy of a, a you know, five or six years ago to modernize their dairy industry. Their goal is to go to four or five big regional processors so that they can control quality. And they don't want any one industry to have too much control of the food supply. So they're diversifying. There were officials in China that basically said they would use the African swine fever to modernize the hog industry there also over time. About 95% of their hog herd is in backyard, uh, small primitive again herds and they would use uh, this current tragedy probably to do a similar model to the hogs and then go uh, to modern and uh, try like the United States has with uh, uh, you know very scientific feed allocations and you know right uh, over what we we had here a hundred years ago one thing we've heard and, and we had Mark Cullen on the podcast uh, a couple of months ago talking about his impression of China and and the, the thing that stood out to me was the difference between the U.S. and the Chinese as far as the pork they eat. The Chinese prefer fresh, where it doesn't bother us in the U.S. to freeze pork and then thaw it out and use it. So The reason, the reason that I've seen, and we were very fortunate to stop into small markets, they do not have a lot of refrigeration capabilities at the local level small apartments there that is not not common uh it would be equivalent to basically dorm room living i think is what okay. an american could associate to how most of those uh, uh, people exist in very small rooms much like this office there could be four or five people existing so refrigeration they eat, they eat very fresh food that is also one of the things that we witnessed as uh, african swine fever is not containable because they transport live infected animals 
great distances and then uh, uh, harvest those animals basically on site almost and so your your contamination is definitely not controllable like it is in a in a modern american style uh, production where we have you know confinements if we had outbreaks you know we would start locking those buildings down right um they are intermingling infected animals throughout the country moving these animals uh virtually making it impossible to quarantine for that style but that is what uh what they uh it's it's just the nature and the culture that it is um it it appears to me if we if we imported pork into china uh we're probably going to do larger primal cuts and then they will process them more in, at a regional or local level oh okay okay yeah that makes sense but uh packaged package uh like uh, you would see in a in a fairway or a hy-vee around here it does exist but that's not how what feeds the bulk of the people right so let's go back to um the actual raising of of hogs in that country and again help me if i'm wrong but my understanding is it's similar to the corn farmer the grain farmer it's a very small operations it's backyards it's one or two per family member or or per family um, that are raising those hogs is that is that kind of correct it, is it, it would be uh, probably a little larger scale than that it would be more uh, what i would associate with how my uh, my grandparents raised hogs here in iowa um you know small small herds probably uh in the 25 head range uh you know a few sows and you know but very uh, uh living history farm style sure uh, production okay all right so i guess my point on that is the way they feed those hogs in those smaller herds might not be the the scientific ration you talked about in the confinement but maybe some table scraps and some other just whatever feed they have available correct and the table scraps is also one of the infecting causes of why the disease is spreading so uncontrollably is that they are feeding pork scraps which the uh, the infe- infected pork is doesn't affect humans but it can affect the hog and it can be passed through even cooked meat correct. so uh, it's a it's a it's a cycle that historically they can't break the thing that was very odd to us, though, the farmers really were not aware of any because they are not told by the government. Uh, the people of China in their culture do not question what the government tells them. So whatever the government tells them uh, is set in stone. They do not question it. So most of the farmers were not even aware of why their of pigs the were dying. They just knew that their okay. pigs were dying and something's wrong. It's it's not like a Western country where they have uh, news feeds and, and uh, they can put panic into the population right uh, it is very you know social media over there exists uh only as a site called uh, wechat and that is a similar to a facebook style deal but it's completely regulated by the government right so the information flow uh they don't have iowa state extension they don't have a lot of the tools and the the industry experts that american agriculture tends to rely on. Or even the private side of it. I mean, there's, I know there's a lot of private companies there, but that information doesn't get down to that local level. Then. Exactly. Okay. One thing I'd heard earlier, and you know, this is kind of where I'm headed to, we've been talking and I've, I've read some stories about this, that the soybean meal demand might actually increase a little going forward as China moves out of this backyard farming type table scrap thing and they go into more of a confinement area where it's more scientific and so the the demand for soybean meal actually increases even if you cut that herd 
by it, a third or a fourth. It would appear to me if they modernize their, their, their pork industry alone, just looking at that sector, yes, you, you could see a definite increase for uh, commercialized feed products, uh, both uh, soybean meal and even DDGs. Mm-hmm. So there could be a, a market to be had there and built in the coming years as this this uh, this develops into a, a tangible uh, direction for the Chinese uh, agriculture. Sure, and certainly they've got a, a, a cultural shift that they have to figure out how to get through, and and that could take, like you said, years. It's not it's not going to happen overnight. Even if we solve this it, issue with China on trade, that's not going to increase. The, the opinion the opinion of our group as a whole uh, going into this was, and for years, you know, we've been told we sell one out of every three rows of our soybeans to China. Um, it it really appeared to us that the Chinese. Um, we heard numerous times the Chinese are playing chess. The Americans are playing checkers. They look at our country as a very immature young country. We're only a few hundred years old. They are thousands of years old. They take great pride in that. So in that mindset, uh, and, and it seems like the Chinese have been less than truthful or sometimes a questionable trading partner. It, but it definitely appeared to us that we may have uh, gotten comfortable or overplayed our hand with Chinese trade, you know, as far as putting too much emphasis on them. That was kind of the easy path, and that's not blaming any one administration. It seems like it's been a cultural a progress that we've made over uh, several decades, but it really appeared to us that we definitely need to emphasize on building new markets, um, not counting China out, but trying to work with China in a different direction and how we can be a part of that. So it, there's, it looked to me like there's going to be some pain in the short term, and the short term for us you know, is not weeks and months, it's years. But however, it, it looks like in the, in, in the long run, there's definitely potential in China. And it's, it's just a very uh, difficult uh, market to enter. The, the language barriers, uh, the translations, one word can make a difference in, a, in how a, a statement is perceived. Uh, I think we've seen that on the national level. We definitely witnessed there. It was very hard communicating through interpreters to make your point. Right. And I've heard that, you know, and I haven't been to China, but there's so many dialects in Chinese that, you know, you there might was be speaking a... Mandarin, but this person's speaking slightly different dialects. So it does create some conflict in, we were in told interpretation. There's, a, there's about 50 different dialects of the Chinese language. Our interpreter that we started with in Beijing actually made the entire trip with us. By the time we reached Hong Kong, our interpreter in Hong Kong and our interpreter in Beijing could not understand. They would understand about one out of three words. Oh, wow. However, they both knew a dialect that was somewhere in the middle, so they would kind of communicate in in that particular dialect. Okay. Um, I used uh, my phone, my Siri on my Apple phone to translate in Chinese, and uh, that, however, is only one dialect of fifty. So I, I I'm not an expert. I don't know which one it was. It seemed to kind of work, but it wasn't. It was definitely not foolproof. Okay. So there's there's a language barrier even within the country. So talk to us a little bit about Hong Kong. You said you you guys uh, traveled through there. Obviously, Hong Kong's in the news lately. There's yes. a lot of conflict there. What's your take on that whole Hong Kong was situation? Uh, Hong Kong was actually a very remarkable place because uh, I was aware that there was uh, uh, Hong Kong was a colony of Britain at one point, but I didn't realize the extent of its. Uh, it almost acts like a separate country, and uh, the Chinese definitely want it back. Um, it seems to be a safe haven and a place where uh, Chinese people or uh, people with a little uh, more, I don't know the right word, they will challenge government thinking 
where that is not allowed in China. So you, you might tend to get a little more liberal attitude about the government and policies in Hong Kong, and thus that's what we're seeing on the news right now. Uh, Taiwan is another instance similar in, in culture in, in Taiwan, and, and China definitely does not like to have people questioning what they're doing. Um, it was interesting to find out in Hong Kong, uh, the topic from uh, a U.S. trade ambassador there uh, was talked about the gray trade, and that was a term we, we had never really heard before, but they said to truly look at the imports going into China, you also have to include the imports through Hong Kong. You also have to include the imports through Vietnam. Those are legal uh, international trade ports. However, those countries also have trade agreements with mainland China, and some of the products will flow through those legal ports and then go into China, thus circumventing uh, possible tariffs and and, uh, some of the retaliation prices that have gone on lately. So it, it then is coined gray trade because it is not black market, which would go through an illegal port. This is all above board, but it just happens to be kind of a backdoor into mainland China. So to look at China's true uh, trade uh, size, you a lot of times have to include those two ports or those two countries. Sure. And I know, you know, from experience when the Chinese started to crack down on different GMO events in their um, DDGs, it, it really was interesting to see how the uh, imports into some of those countries increased. It, yes. Almost overnight, you know, so just to back to your point there. So um, last topic I want to talk about, we talked a little bit uh, previously, just the education system in China, totally different than the U.S. So just kind of walk us through how that happens and what happens uh, for the, the life of a child as they're going through that education system. It was, it was very interesting because most Chinese, uh, we met some, a bit, an American businessman working over there in some uh, fish farming, which again is another form of agriculture. Um, he found that most of the Chinese people had a very, very uh, limited education, very basic, not a lot of economic skills. And uh, what generally happens is when uh, when a child gets to about eighth, ninth grade American in that age, that age range, uh, they're basically given an aptitude test or a, a test, similar to like what we do, uh, the basic skills mm-hmm. or, or uh, tests like that. But in China, that test then can determine that child's path forward in life. Uh, if they are not deemed for higher education or any more investment, they are then basically kicked into the labor pool of the country and uh, deemed not worthy of any more uh, furthering of a resource um, because they definitely value education and that investment is is a, a resource in that that person. If uh, certain families uh, they have businesses and whatnot that they've done for decades, hundreds of years, uh, a lot of those children follow in the past. Uh, up till a few years ago, they do have a one-child policy. Uh, we never uh, found anyone we talked to that was eager to have more than one child because the they want to put all their eggs, all their investment to ensure that that one child can succeed. A lot of families, that's their ticket to improving their livelihood is by having that child exceed in areas they couldn't. Uh-huh. And, and that child then could uh, provide the, the income for better food, uh, apartments, uh, cars, and so on. So uh, it's, it's very uh, kind of a simplistic look, but it's Again, that is the culture. It is not questioned. It is just how it's how it's done. A, a very Western way of thinking is to challenge everything, and and uh, we we emphasize that in our in our culture here in America. That is not even thought of in China. 
but uh, it's it, again it's a very old proud uh, the Chinese people I was amazed I had a lot of respect for them but they just have never been exposed to uh, a lot of freedoms that we take for granted here in, in the Western world sure. so uh, you know it's just a, it's a different but it's it's their way mm-hmm. so it's a, it, but it's a very proud and uh, to, to intermingle they had a great respect for Americans they had the Chinese people loved seeing uh, they, they put a lot of value in American uh, beef and American pork uh, that was considered very safe and very pre- a very premium product over there. Okay. Well, so good. that that was uh, very encouraging to see that. It's just getting through the hurdles to, to get our products into those, those countries. Right. The pol- but, political side is but different. But a lot of our products, if you go into our grocery store, without refrigeration, without freezing, it's very challenging for us to to get our products into those markets. Sure. Well, we need to kind of wrap up here. Anything that you, else you want to talk about with regard to China or Farm Bureau before we kind of wrap up for the day? It just, uh, like I said, the trip to China, it, it, uh, it opened my eyes in that side of the world. Uh, it really made me appreciate American agriculture and especially uh, my farm here in Webster County, Iowa. So it was, uh, it was an eye-opening experience. I bet. Probably one of those you'll remember the rest of your life. It will be, definitely. Yeah. Well, Steve, I want to thank you for joining us as part of the Bull Bear Banter, and uh, we look forward to talking to uh, you in the future. Thank you, Tom. Thanks.